From the University of Arkansas at Little Rock, KUAR Public Radio brings you Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, the only program on radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought, with your host, Bill Marriage. Welcome to the Crossroads of History. While it may be one place most of us would rather not have to find ourselves, the visit to the doctor's office has always been a vital in our lives. In times not so long ago, your local physician addressed almost all your concerns. He, and it usually was a male, probably knew your entire family's health conditions. So much has changed over the generations, not the least of which is the balancing of gender in the profession. Doctor visits yesterday, today, and tomorrow is our topic today. And I do have three guests with me here in the studio. Dr. Curtis Lowry, he's a professor and chairman of the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the College of Medicine. Dr. Lowry established the ANGELS, which is Antenatal and Neonatal Guidelines Education and Learning System. Did I say that right? Yes, Okay. exactly right. That's a, a Medicaid-funded, cost-effective, programmatic solution to assist Arkansas's high-risk pregnancies. This program reaches patients throughout Arkansas in need of subspecialty maternal-fetal medicine support. And Dr. Lowry was instrumental in establishing the UAMS Center for Distance Health a technology-based partnership of the College of Medicine and Regional Programs. We'll get quite a bit into that telemedicine as we get into here. Dr. Lowry, glad to have you with me here today. Well, thanks for having us. Also with me here today is registered nurse Michael Manley. He's the Outreach Director for the UAMS Center of Distance Health Director of Outreach. Uh, Michael, glad to have you here. Thanks, Phil. And then also registered nurse Tina Benton. She's the Executive Director of Development and Oversight Director of the UAMS Center for Distance Health and Angels Program. And she was a re recent recipient of Telehealth Champion Award, which recognizes individuals who are essential to the success of a telehealth project and program. Tina, that's a mouthful. Glad to have you here. Thank you. Okay. I'm 66, and I don't remember Dr. Visit and the House, but my dad was born in 1924, he had scarlet fever, and the doctor came to his house, and I'm sure that that was quite a bit of the way things used to be. And I'd like to start with you, uh, Dr. Lowry, if you can fill in the gaps from that as to what doctor visits were for people in, in the, the various generations prior to where we are right now. I think in healthcare we should all thank our grandfathers in terms of health care. In, in the olden days, we did do doctor visits. We'd go in people's homes, and, and they loved us. Unfortunately, we couldn't do a lot back in those days. Antibiotics didn't really exist, and treatments were not well-informed. And so while we went in homes, it was often psychological comfort. But that relationship we had with patients bought the future for us because as companies and the industrialization of America occurred, then patients really wanted to see doctors to be paid well. On that goodwill, we built, the, I think, the infrastructure of health. And, of course, as that began to occur, then we became scientists. We got information and treatments and, and medicines and surgeries, and we began to really have an impact on patients' lives and changing things. But to some degree... <laughs> We became scientists and not as much the, the personal relationship. We lost some of that as we begin to, to worry about health care as an industry and less about the person. And so as we move forward now, I think we're in an age of which that we'll begin to move back to, to putting the patient first. As a result of health care reform, 
I think it will begin to focus doctors back on the patient as an individual with the, with the difference of now technology being used to treat people, provide care in new ways, just as technology has affected many of the industries around us today, Amazon.com, the air, airline industry, all these things. You don't have to think very hard to realize how much technology changed things. And we're on the cusp of the new age of technology, uh, of healthcare, in which we'll be embedding these things in healthcare. As I was preparing the program and talking to different people, we talked about their experiences, and I'm, I had a hard time remembering when that this change that you mentioned really happened. Did it happen in the 50s or the 60s where we saw, saw it moving away from the personal contact of one doctor with the whole family, and then we sort of saw specialties coming about? I can't really remember. I'm guessing maybe somewhere in the Late 50s or 60s? Yeah, I, I think that's good. It, probably most highly associated with Medicaid, which happened in the 1960s. And Medicaid really provide a new structure of payment for many patients that didn't have any money for health care. And to some degree, it largely built teaching institutions around America because before they were uh, systems for which patients without any money would go to and and the usually funded by the state they're often in the south training programs for residents and and they weren't really well funded but then with this federal money flowing in medicaid and medicare then it built these systems and they they, they got larger and larger and mm-hmm. and really became the the stellar programs they are today but it it was gradual kind of over time from the 1950s to mm-hmm. I'd say mid-70s, you know, in that range. That's where that started to make that transition? Yeah. Well, let's go back before the 50s then. Let's say you, uh, a, a family went to their their doctor for something. What do you think they saw in the form of a doctor's office? What was in the doctor's office then? Well, again, I don't remember a lot of the stuff, no. but I've seen pictures <laughs> of this. But, you know, often it, it might be just one room, you know, with, with the, the treatment in there. And it wasn't the organized structural clinics. A lot of times, a lot of these guys spend a lot of time outside their office. You know, like you said, like we said before, going to people's homes and treating them there. And so that was much more the tradition in, in those days. And really and truly, there wasn't a huge advantage to being in your office if you can't do it. They, they did minor surgeries and they had some kinds of treatments, you know, the one of the other big differences that probably I should bring up is that you were isolated more. We forget about the olden days in which roads were bad. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of the, the rural hospitals that are present today were built under the Hill-Burton Act, which produced money to build hospitals in these rural areas because you just couldn't get to Little Rock or big cities. The cars weren't fast and the roads were terrible, and so you were isolated and so you need something like that to, and we still need rural hospitals. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying, that's why you see so many of these big, big rural hospitals all over the place. What kind of tools did a doctor have then? I mean, I, I know you probably had the stethoscope, obviously, but did they have other stuff to work with? Not so much in the 30s and 40s. Not in those days. X-rays weren't readily available everywhere in those days. You. I mean, we could do surgery. You know, anesthesia was was evolving. You know, during this pre time. I mean, if you remember, like in the even the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, 
well, we had no antibikes, but also we didn't sterilize things as much. You know, we and there weren't gloves, and and so the surgery of old is dramatically different than the surgery that we see today. And it evolved over time. We got better and better. New procedures were developed, and and things changed. You know, quality of medical education changed, so that there was much better standardization of care across the the nation in terms of how you're going to train. Prior to that, it was all over the board. I mean, you, you just made up stuff and did whatever you wanted to do a little bit in the training programs. Uh, I think Hopkins was really the thing that standardized everything for us. You know, it, it really kind of looked at European programs and Hopkins sort of standard the way that programs looked to them, and that became the model program for America. Uh, a few years ago, we did a program on pharmacy, and we were talking with the older pharmacist at that time, and he was talking about in his early memory, the doctor would come or he would go and have whatever pills he had in his pocket and just say, take this pill. I mean, from what you're saying, and I know those who are younger listening to this program today have no idea what it might be to not be able to have an X-ray or to have the antibiotics. Uh, we live in a world that's entirely different than, from that. Michael Manley, bring me up from what your perspective is as you see the doctor visit. I think it's in a big transition now. One of the things that uh, we've been lucky at the Center for Distance Health to work with is trying to match the technology to the patient demand. And uh, we just came from another meeting. Dr. Lowry is serving on a big task force here in the state of Arkansas in, in defining what is that patient-physician relationship? Where does that stand and how does that integrate to the new technology? Just because a patient asks for something doesn't mean they should always get it. Now with the technology, especially with what they're calling the wave that's going across the United States is concierge medicine. And so it's like patients are saying, I want a doctor visit where I am, when I want it, and I want to be taken care of. So again, it, there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, opening up a Pandora's box, you know, the patient safety has always got to come first. The technology is there. So I think the future, you know, the real future we're, is where that's going. But I think we're somewhere in between at this point of the traditional patient-physician relationship and the demand of the patients now and how we how we meet those needs. Mm -hmm. Well, Tina Benton, talk to me about where we are in that middle area then, from the older to where we may be in the future. What do, what do people see now when they go in to talk to the doctor? Well, I think there's still uh, traditional face-to-face -face going on, as always, but now we can expand it because patients now can go to maybe their rural health clinic and see a specialist. You know, back in... You know, I'm in my 50s, and I can remember I saw my primary care provider for everything. As the medical practice has evolved, you know, there's lots more specialties with cardiology, neurology, maternal fetal medicine. My perspective is we still want to do face-to-face, -face, but we want to reach patients where they can't make it. I know that our programs, we can see patients, we can make an appointment here in Little Rock, but what if they don't have gas for their car or they don't have a car, uh, they got five children with them, those kind of things, and it makes it totally a barrier for them to even get here. So what I see now is how do we take this face-to-face -face and move it closer back to the patient where they can have that access. I do know that the sooner you see someone, for whatever their condition is, and you can make an intervention, they're going to have a better outcome than to wait, reappoint, reappoint, because, you know, they don't have their gas money or they don't have 
uh, child care and things like that. So I think that's my perspective is let's bring it back closer to the patient. Now, you use that word, uh, Michael, that uh, concierge. Now, I'm not sure I personally have heard that term very much. Define that a little better for what we may be seeing. Uh, again, it, it is relatively new across the spectrum as far as health care, but concierge is basically getting, you know, whatever it is, whether it's a physician or nurse or whatever, to the patient So and taking care of them. So what we're seeing is if I've got a problem and I'd like to see a physician, there's there are apps out there now. You know, you hear there's an app for that. Well, guess what? There's an app for that. And so they can go online and they'll pull up, they have to sign in or whatever. They can pull up if they're, you know, licensed in that state to practice. They can pull up four or five physicians who are ready to take their video call right then. And they can punch that button and it'll notify that physician and that physician will dial in and visit with that patient and, you know, take care of them. So that's concierge. It doesn't matter if you're in your office, in your home, in your car. I mean, it doesn't matter where you are. You're going to be able to access that kind of medical Yeah, and they're, and they're actually even, like in California, there are groups that will even be available 24-7 to go see you in your home or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that that's in for the high-end rich people. Okay. So it's for wealthy clients. And as you begin to see changes in health care, a little bit right now, consumers get to say a lot about what, what they want today. That may not be true in the future as we begin to have to bend the cost of health care. And so in many countries, like in, for instance, in Australia and European countries, they have a good, solid public health-centered health care paid by the government. And then there are additional uh, services that you can buy, like an additional insurance outside of the traditional government-funded that will provide more on-demand sort of things, not to the level that we just said, but a different kind of health care of which people get different kinds of options, other things. Right now, you can't tell really much difference in the health care in America. It's all sort of the same, I mean, pretty much, unless you pay somebody additionally money, like Michael said, so you'll be available 24-7 for that person. Pretty much everybody gets the same kind of health care. But we may not be able to continue to fund things at that level going forward. We've got to be smart at what we do. Another thing I say, 60% of the health care today are paid by companies. 60% of the health care is paid by Walmart and uh, J.B. Hunt and Southwest Airlines and Home Depot, thousands of other companies. That, that's who pays for your health insurance. And the premiums have gone up and gone up and gone up. And they say, we're, we're not paying anymore. You guys do something about it. And they're telling the, the payers, the Blue Cross Blue Shield, and the Blue Cross Shield guys are telling now the health care providers, do something about it, get the cost down. And that's where we are at a crossroads. Well, you used the word in the beginning of we're on the cusp of some changes, apparently. Are we at the beginning part of the cusp? In the, or have we moved into this change, or is it yet to come from what you guys see? Well, I think you have to look around the country, and some places it's high penetrance, like on the coast mainly. Here is not; it's just beginning. I think now it'll. I think other people set the road already, so it'll go fast once it starts because it's not as much of a learning curve, but it still takes time for it to you know take off and move forward. 
Yeah, so. I think we've been pretty insulated here in Arkansas as far as the delivery system and how we've done this. And to Tina and Dr. Larry's credit, I mean, they have built an infrastructure here that we are one of the leading states in the country when it comes to telehealth. You know, now we're kind of merging the two. So, yes, we are on the cusp. We're ahead in the technology side. The, the healthcare industry side is just now catching up. Is that, are you referring to the infrastructure that supports it? Or? I would say we'd say payment will drive oh, it. Okay. So payment right. drives everything. Well, Tina, explain <laughs> to us what telehealth, uh, telemedicine, how it is structured. How do If you're listening to, the, to this program, you don't know anything about telemedicine. Uh, is there a, an ABC to it? Of course, there's different methodologies. So I can tell you, for us, it's bringing subspecialty care out to the hinterlands, okay? So that's that's one sort of model. And then what Dr. Lowry and Michael have referenced is the on-demand where you get the doctor and on your smartphone or your iPad. And, and so, so it really depends on, you know, kind of what you're talking about, what, what subject in as far as primary care versus subspecialties. So for us, we have pretty much hardwired all the, all the hospitals in Arkansas. The, uh, they have hardwired standard telemedicine equipment. We have a stroke program that is 47 hospitals now uh, that are covered in Arkansas, which we have around 80 hospitals in Arkansas. So we have vascular neurology support that can go to that ED, wherever it is in Arkansas, and provide subspecialty support for stroke victims. This is an MD on call 24-7 to be able to go into any hospital that's in the program Mm -hmm. to get treatment, you know, 24-7. So that's what we have, these guys on call. They're like specialists in different things. Yes, neurology mainly. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Otherwise, you'd have to have 80 neurologist yeah. across the state of Arkansas to treat those stroke victims. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Arkansas is ranked 50th in stroke mortality, so we knew we had to do something. Uh, Dr. Lowry, uh, uh, let me ask you about um, primary care. We've used that word a little bit here. I know that primary care used to be considered or maybe still is considered the gatekeeper to all the other specialties. Where does primary care fit into this system? Everybody needs a, a primary care physician. That's kind of what the way things should be. How many do? I, I can't tell you the percentage uh, in Arkansas, but it's, it's a lot of people don't have a primary care doctor, choose not to get it. I, I want to say 30%, you know, it, it's higher than you think. The idea being that you have a primary care doctor. I, I have a primary care doctor. I think everybody in this room have a primary care doctor. And that person is available to you for physical exam and basic treatment, but they're the interface. And I don't know if I'd necessarily, I mean, the gatekeeper sounds like they're trying to keep you from getting access to something. I, I think they're more help the patients make decisions about what they need and what they don't need. Everybody doesn't need a cardiologist, mm-hmm. you know, to be their primary care doctor. But sometimes they, primary, you know, cardiologists might seem the primary role if your primary problem is heart problem. So I think that it varies kind of based on the situation. They are available, and then they get access. What we're doing is building a systems approach to healthcare. It's not just about telemedicine. We try not to say telemedicine. We try to say distance health, and that includes all kinds of technologies that might be used 
to integrate you into the care delivery system. And the system that we're building here goes outside of the hospital and outside of the clinic and to primary care doctors and even to the patients in their home. And so we'll be putting in systems that allow us to collect information and manage patients depending on their needs, no matter where they are. And a lot of the treatment in the future is going to go on in your home or at other places in the doctor's office. And the payment structure is going to support that down the road. So um, right now, largely, we get paid by an encounter or a procedure. So it's it's fee for the so-called fee for service. The future is probably going to be a lot less of that and more it's going to be about managing the health of the individual. So we what we want to do is keep them healthy and keep them, which is the right thing for the patient, by the way, keep them from consuming health care dollars unnecessarily. So that's where we're going. Yes. Coming back to my points about access to care and the appointments for, you know, people that can't make it here. So it's even going to go deeper than that because what you're going to try to do is prevent people to be in the hospital. It's going to have to have a strong primary care base and sort of a a preemptive strike, sort of say, for people that have chronic disease, for example. How can we get to them where they don't get that sick, where they hit the ER and then they get admitted? If you need like a certified diabetic educator or you need a social worker or if you need a pharmacy for to look at all your medicines and reconcile them. We can bring these kind of teams together in an economical way for each patient using this technology. It's a great future and it's going to be better outcomes as we progress for each individualized patient. Okay, Michael, let me ask you this. If, if I, and I don't know anything about telemedicine or anything, but I hear this program and I've got a concern of something in my, myself or my family, where do I go? Do I just get on the phone or do I go to the internet or how do I get a hold of telemedicine? That's part of the problem I think the consumer has or whatever. Unless If you have a job, most of those things are going to be directed. You know, it's like you use this. Your insurance has been in the past given you that before. Consumers are becoming very educated, though. And they've got, I don't know if you heard, there's this thing out there called Google. And so, you know, they, they go on and they How search. How spell them. that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they go on and they search these things. And that's, that's one of the things that we are very concerned about when looking at this technology for the future is making sure that consumers are well-educated in what is appropriate what isn't appropriate. Albert Einstein said, the answer to a problem should be as simple as possible, but not any simpler. So if a, as a consumer, if I go out and research this because I'm having chest, not chest pains, that's probably a little bit, something you know, silly, and they go and look, and then all of a sudden they see, oh, there's a telemedicine company I can call and get hooked up or whatever. Well, you know, who's to say they're going to give them appropriate care? Who's to say who's yeah. responsible for it? Are they going to do it only by telephone? Are they, you can't diagnose somebody just by telephone in an initial encounter. So those are things the consumer, we're trying to educate from the Center for Distance Health side. We have a podcast that's done by uh, Sarah, Dr. Sarah Kinder and uh, Delbert McCutcheon. They do a 10-minute podcast every month. And it's based on, it's like just trying to educate the consumer about these kind of issues with telehealth and be smart about it. That, that gets back to the systems answer, right? Do you, you got to have a primary care doctor, and you got to work with the existing health care system, and we add these things on to fill in the holes to provide a quality 
good, low-cost uh, care. That does become more on demand. If you're really sick and you need care at 3 a.m., we should be able to provide that through you. So we have a call center as part of this so that you can access you know, nurses that then bring in the doctors as necessary. I mean, that's the future of this stuff. Primary care doctors and other doctors need support sometimes. And again, you have access to that as well. So the healthcare of the future doesn't stop with the door, but it goes to the, again, to the patient in their home really ultimately. But everybody doesn't need that, but there are some people that need it because they're so unstable. Well, let me ask all three of you this question, whoever wants to answer it. What's the incentive for doctors or people involved in this system? What's their incentive to get involved? I mean, if I'm, I'm just going to use this as an example. If, if I'm a, a specialist in whatever field and I've got a certain group of people that are coming to see me now, why would I be interested in becoming a part of telemedicine? I bet Dr. Larry has one word for it that's going to drive them there. Yeah, it's money. It'll it'll change the behavior. Indi- right. Individual specialists in in on office three blocks from now. Right, from mm-hmm. right. Because now everybody won't adapt, and many of them won't make it to this. But the trend is clear, and that is companies which pay for sixty percent of all health care think health care is too expensive, and they want us to do something to reduce the expenditures. And the only thing we can do as providers is to try to treat them earlier and keep them out of the hospital. That's what we have to do. And so subspecialists will have to participate in this to be able to accomplish this. And if you don't participate, then you better be good at that uh, concierge stuff because you're not going to be in the traditional network down the road. Now, this isn't going to happen tomorrow. It's going to happen probably in five years or less, probably even closer to three or four. Well, when I make that first call, do I get sent to a primary care person, or who who filters what my problem is to wherever it needs to go? It depends on your condition and time of day. Which The care will be individualized. So We have actually triage software and nurses 24-7 in our call center. And so if a patient calls in with a complaint... It is triaged in an algorithmic manner to disposition them accordingly. So we can actually talk them through what their issue is. If it's emergent, it's direct go to the ED. But there are so many other things that you can do that will discount an ED visit, which are very, very costly. And if we can reassure the patient they're safe, maybe even give them over-the-counter advice as far as medications, and reappoint them appropriately based on what their response is and their their complaint. I think that's uh, very, very important. And also, it's good care for them. And it also calms them. I'm okay. I can Mm -hmm. make this. And they've given me the kind of advice I need to decrease my anxiety and my anxiety about what my condition is. I think everybody will be able to call a call center and talk to somebody. But what we're talking about here is much more proactive. Yeah. So certain people are sicker than other people. They need more intervention, more aggressive management. And that situation will be calling them, you know, we'll have devices on them to monitor, for instance, you know, cheap wearable devices that can monitor their blood pressure and, and heart rate and conditions. 
And that data will be feeding into us, and we'll take actions earlier in the home to prevent them from deteriorating and having to go to the ER. I'm so. assuming you're saying that person is probably someone who's already been in the system a little bit, and you know a little bit about them, so they have equipment, to, yes. and then they access you if something happens. Right. Yes. In our call center, we have you know the luxury, of course, to look at patients' records, too, so... If there is a disposition that is to the ED, we can look at their records and, and bring that in so that it's very, very important to look at that patient history and, and what kind of medications they are on um, and just particularly what kind of type of patient they have and, and their past experiences. And well, well, how do they pay? Uh, we mentioned that they have insurance from their companies, but uh, let's say I'm, uh, I've been unemployed for six months and I don't have any insurance anymore or whatever and I'm really kind of in dire straits but I've got this deal and I call because I know about it now how do I pay again the new stuff that's coming out or whatever right or wrong they're they're saying you got a credit card it's gonna cost you 40 bucks then we'll dial up and see you fill out an online form and pay us your forty dollars and we'll call and see you so it doesn't matter if you have insurance or not but again there's some responsibility factors around there and when you silo something off like that then the outcomes are not going to be as good. When you're part of a system where you can be moved up and down the system appropriately, that's, you know, that's where the best outcome co comes because it's long-term. A lot of these new guys that you're seeing coming up with apps and things like that, they're in it for the minute, and they're in it for the buck real quickly. Now, you may get your Z-Pack, and you may get, you know, take care of your sinusitis. What happens if, if it's not indigestion and you're actually having a heart attack? What are they going to do? And so, again, educating the consumer just because it's out there, and I think we've, you know, again, been doing that for quite a while here in Arkansas on telehealth. We've got to keep going and look at it, as Dr. Lowry said, a system-wide behavior. So if I call at 1030 at night and I get whoever it is I'm talking to and I live in town A, would I be referred to somebody in my town or would I have to go to whoever I'm talking to kind of thing? Well, in our system currently, then we would make contact locally as we begin to roll this out. It would be integrated in, in, the, in the system. That's the idea is what, what we're doing in Arkansas is an integrated system. We want to keep people at home and work with the local physicians. And so as we roll that out, that's the kind of, kind of the way things will work. We're going to have to start following guidelines and protocols in other words, we all kind of need to be treating patients the same way for the same conditions, you know, and that's one of the things that will also be part of this change. Right now, we're in transition from, again, fee-for-service to managed care. There are certain things that work very well. Stroke works very well because that's a relatively common but uncommon event to go to the ER, and so... We can do that centrally and have doctors on call to go and help treat that patient in the field, and that was an important thing. OBs worked very well because in the past, all OB patients had funding sources pretty much in the state of Arkansas. Since the Affordable Health Care Act has gone down, we the uninsured rates dropped dramatically in the state of Arkansas, so they have access to doctors now. And so since they're integrating the system, it's a lot easier to provide treatment for them as it unfolds. Now, again, in a fee-for-service world. But as we step out of that and get to sort of at risk stuff, I, we can tell you the VA system does all kinds of stuff, <laughs> managed care devices. I mean, it's just 
incredible what those guys are doing. And you know why? Because the VA is an accountable care organization, mm-hmm. a giant accountable care organization, because the government tells them this is how much money you're getting take care of your population. And so they're not afraid to do new things in that system. Yeah, I mean, the VA system is probably the biggest, best socialized medicine system we have in the country. Glad you mentioned that word, because that's one of the questions I had in my mind as I was thinking about this. And I'm not afraid of that word in this context, but I know a lot of people are afraid of the word socialized medicine. And it sounds like that uh, telemedicine or this wave or this cusp that we're at skirts the good parts of what people would say medicine should be about for a society, and maybe does it avoid the negative connotations that people have when they hear socialized medicine? This is not, I mean, what we're talking about here is not socialized medicine. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that. It, it's, it's still capitalism. It's just capitalism in a different way. In the old, old way of doing it, you benefited by doing things to people, procedures and admissions to the hospital. And the new way, you benefit as a capitalist by being efficient. And so providing quality care, doing the appropriate amount of stuff to the patient, because if you do too little, that causes harm, and you have to pay for that too. If yeah. you do too much, that's unnecessary, that's going to have to be paid for by your system. So your idea now is how to be efficient, which is – kind of what businesses have to do. I mean, if you're going to sell cars, you got to be able to produce a quality car at a reasonable price. Incidentally, my brother is a, a mechanic, and he talks about there used to be parts changers where they would just change parts till they found the right part, and you paid for those parts, whereas now he has to use the technology to find the, the right part the first time to save people money. And it's sort of the same thing I think what you're talking about is do it right the first time. Right. You lose by doing the wrong stuff or too much of it mm-hmm. are not enough. So it's still capitalism. The, the best guys or women or hospitals are going to win at this. You know, it's just different than a consumption-based system. Well, what will be the connection between the physician, the telemedicine, and the hospital? Where, what part does the hospital play in, in this cusp that we're talking about? Is the, is the hospital going to change along with the rest of this? Yes, definitely, because now what happens is that you're integrating the networks, too. The hospitals are integrated. Frankly, in the old days, well, still today, the hospitals compete with one another, right? Because, you know, you want to do, I mean, you make money off of doing things to patients. When you move into this new world, what will happen is is that you don't necessarily want to do everything you can to the patient and keep them there. If it's a complicated patient, you might very much want them to go to a place that's designed to take care of complicated patients. And that's better because that system is more qualified to take care of complicated patients. And perhaps, not perhaps for sure, some of these smaller systems are better at taking care of routine patients. So they don't have many of the encumberments that complicated systems have. So it's better for them to stay in a less complicated system and get routine gallbladder or appendectomy removed in that sort of situation. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. You could actually even convalesce patients if they were expedited to a high acuity hospital with multi specialties and the interventions done, whatever that is, uh, they could actually be pushed back down the system to the smaller hospital and convalesce there 
And that specialty could do telemedicine to that patient, you know, just like you would round and are you doing okay, Miss Smith? And and so anyway, there's just a new way that we can all work together in a much more efficient manner uh, in the future. Yeah, and I think the money part, you, know, you go back to what Dr. Lowry is saying, the duplication of services. UAMS may have a service and a hospital down the street would have a service and it didn't matter if they would battle for patients or whatever. Well, you might lose money now because of that. So sometimes you may have to give up something to get something else in that. So I think that's coming to, under this new system, those kind of things, the partnerships that you're seeing uh, in the telehealth part of it, integrating this into the system and moving the patients around appropriately are very good. So instead of having Mr. Goodwrench, now we've got Dr. Goodwrench mm-hmm. and being, you know, finding the right part for that patient and where that patient needs to go appropriately. Do you guys see hospitals themselves becoming specialized? Oh, yeah, it's sort of already happening. I mean, to some degree, the old days of every hospital doing every possible thing Mm -hmm. to be competitive Mm -hmm. is sort of going away. You say if if a hospital's got the volume, then you say, okay, well, we cannot compete against that, nor should we try. Let those guys do that, and then we'll focus on the stuff that we do. And so we do these partnerships, and at-risk products, it becomes even easier. And there's also a well-known association with volume like if you do more things you're more efficient and you have less bad outcomes as opposed to rare doing rare sort of cases so there's a quality built into this well how do the various insurance companies speak of this future you're talking about are they on board or are they reluctant do they see their bottom lines affected in a yes good or bad the, way? yes the insurance companies used to be largely at risk you know, for they'd say we're going to collect the money from the from the people and from the companies, and we're going to charge them a certain amount per month. And then, then if it goes over, we're at risk. If it's under, then we keep the money. And that's largely gone away with the big companies. The big companies just pay for everything out of pocket. So, and there's no risk to the insurance company or minimal risk, and they have to administer the policy. So in the future world, they really don't care, and they're in favor of the company, of the hospitals and the doctors and everybody being at risk because they say, who better to understand what's necessary or not necessary than the, the doctors and hospitals? And, and they're absolutely right. So as, we, as they say, you guys got to figure it out, then we'll have to. That sounds simple, but I bet it's pretty tough. Yeah, it, it, it is. It's it's a difficult transition, and it's hard for places to make it. We, you've, we've got to do it. I don't see it. Believe me, I don't see a lot of options for us to do this, assuming that what they're saying is correct, which is, you know, we're like 18% of the the GDP, which is the spending in America, is on health care, 18%. What's it going to be, 50%? I mean, there's an end point. For this, mm-hmm. and so we've got to do something about this. We have no choice. Well, let me ask you guys a sticky wicket question: Where does politics fit into all of this? Mike, that's my yeah, question. Um, it plays a huge part because when you start looking at the amount of money that Medicaid and Medicare, even to the point, uh, spends in healthcare, as Dr. Lowry was just talking about, sometimes the politicians try to balance between what's good for business and then again what's good for the patient and healthcare. Or whatever. So there's a big battle there. It goes in listening to somebody who says, well, I want to be able to call a doctor anytime I want and get what I want. 
with that. So it's a very fine balance in that when there's that much money involved, I mean, billions of dollars just here in Arkansas in healthcare, politics plays a huge, huge mm-hmm. part in it. I uh, read a statistic, uh, I think it was two days ago, that um, with the Affordable Health Care Act, was yeah, that's affordable care. Patient yeah. protection and affordable Yes, that Arkansas actually has the greatest number of new participants. In other mm-hmm. words, we're the number one state in the country for people who were uninsured are now in, involved in that. Now, I know we've, we heard the politics of people uh, saying bad things about this, that, and the other, but uh, it sounds like people are interested in what's available. I think you're right, and I think the biggest part that we keep forgetting about is the people who are kind of caught in the gap. These are working people who couldn't afford – their uh, businesses did not give them insurance, right. provide them insurance or whatever, yet they still weren't – they were working, or the working poor, if you will. They still had jobs, but they couldn't you know, get on Medicaid and things like that. And so we had a huge response to that here in the state, and I think our hospital census shows it. And the numbers show it and, and how many people have signed up. Unfortunately, people will always bring in the one or two bad things that, you know, or, that happen with this, mm-hmm. but overall for the state – I don't think there's probably, I mean, I don't know there's a healthcare institution in the state that, that would say this has been a bad thing. Well, if I've signed up for that because I was underemployed or whatever and didn't have insurance, do I have access to telemedicine too through this system? Yes, yeah, we recently got a bill. We worked with the legislatures and there was a bill passed. We were just in a meeting about this. And so they helped really put together a bill that would pay for telemedicine, that all payers would have to pay for telemedicine. And so as we begin to move forward in a fee-for-service world, now there's an opportunity of the originating site to pay for this as well as as the professional, the the consultant to do this. And this is going to expand in an appropriate fashion, I I think, as it it goes forward. Mm -hmm. There's opportunity for other things. But as we become at risk, then we'll do this just because it's cost-effective to do it. And the other thing I'll say is this, is that I drive a car and I have insurance and I want everybody else to have insurance because if that person hits me, their insurance will pay for that accident. Without that, my insurance is going to have to pay for it and my premiums will go up because I have to pay for the my car to be fixed. So that's the way healthcare is in a way, is that if somebody without any kind of payment structure gets admitted to the hospital, the hospital has to take care of that person, which is appropriate. I think people should not. I've been to India, and people don't always get care. Many of them die because they have no way of getting paying for stuff. And so I don't think that's the way America should be. So I think people should have health care. But at some point, if enough people had no insurance, it could bankrupt the hospital. You know, because if my insurance doesn't pay for that person, you know, by that, my premiums are going to go up and and the my company may say, well, I'm not, which they're saying right now, we're not paying any more premiums. So you got to do something about it, which means that the hospital then then has to pay the shortfall of money. And many of these marginal hospitals in Arkansas can't afford to do that anymore. So they'll be going out of business. And I don't think we want that. I don't think these critical access hospitals need to be shut down. So somebody has to pay at some point in time. Healthcare in America has gotten by with cost shifting onto the people with insurance. That's no longer a viable option. 
So we have to do something to change this. I think people need to have insurance. It's very important. Now, we can debate where that comes from, and that's something for politicians to certainly solve down the road. But somebody's going to have to pay for it. And we're and, and as a health care provider, doctors, hospitals, all these other providers, you know, nurses, APRNs, PAs, and other systems, you know, are going to have to be involved as we try to bend the cost curve and provide a quality product at a lesser cost. And we do that by changing the traditional methodologies, moving treatment earlier, you know, out of the hospital, out of the doctor's office, even into the homes, and doing more chronic disease management and keeping readmits to the hospital down. So there are a lot of things that we can do with this, and we don't we don't have a choice right now. We just got to move forward. Well, Tina Benton, give me a timeline from what Dr. Lowry is talking about. Is there, uh, if you could put it in in forms of years, what could we look forward in the next say, three to five years, and then ten years down the line? Just guessing. You know, the first thing is going to be these connections are going to be made. You know, within these health systems. And they're going to leverage and share services so that, number one, that they can meet the demand, but also make their margin. I see that we can use population health management and use the technology that we have right now currently, and we can do a lot of things. We could do a lot of diabetic management. We could treat any kind of chronic disease in a uniform platform with guidelines and protocols, as Dr. Lowry referred. We can currently do that. But I think in the next probably after 5, 10, you know, 20 years, it's going to be, you know, you're going to have little implantables or rings that can detect your oxygen content or your temperature. So there's going to be things like that that are going to come in the future. The bottom's falling out of these devices. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, the chips. I mean, there are there are contact lens that monitor your glucose. That's available and they're cheap. I mean, they're not expensive anymore. And so that's the kind of stuff that we're looking at. So the future is bright for what you're telling me, right, Michael? Uh, you know, we, I, I think I speak for the, uh, Dr. Larry and Tina both. Every day that we go into work, I'm excited because of what's happening with this. And we always talk about the patients. You know, it's like the patients that we serve. And they're and these guys sitting next to me, I mean, they do great work for the state of Arkansas in serving those patients. But when you say excited, I'll tell you who's the most excited is me sitting in this chair of what I've got to look forward to. And I think sometimes we forget that. It's like, yeah, it is about the patients that we serve or whatever. But, you know, sometimes we have to be a little selfish. It's about us, too. And so I'm I mean, I'm super excited about what's to come and how I will be taken care of uh, in the in the very near future and even beyond. And I'm a type 1 diabetic. I am them. Mm -hmm. I am one of those chronic people. So, you know, I, I sit here and talking, you know, about the contact lenses and the insulin pump I wear that goes to my transmitter and things like that. I live it daily. So, yes, I'm very excited that we can actually make a difference. So a young physician coming into the program or nurse or anybody should be paying attention to this happening? Is it advertised anywhere? I mean, I don't know anything about telemedicine. I don't hear any commercials or anything like that. Well, we're not really a company. You know, we, we, what we're doing again is we're working directly with the healthcare providers and and le legislators really big on this because they see it as a way of they're they're going to not exactly defund the Affordable Health Care Act, but but it's going to change and they want it to be more efficient, which I don't blame them. You know about that. I mean, really, the Affordable Health Care Act just kind of provided funding to 
to support the existing system in its current format. Mm-hmm. You know, it, and it, so whether that's good or bad, that was what they get through the legislature. Now, what's expected is is for us to get some of the cost out of the the system, and and I, th- I think it can be done. It's going to take the patients also be engaged, and that's one of the yeah. big yeah. problems. Is that a lot of times patients don't do a lot of the things that's expected of them. But I mean, it's becoming easier. I think you know to do that. I mean, with the video conferencing stuff that we can do in people's homes, yeah. then then I think we can reach out in a new sort of way and in, in management. And and I and I think it's really we are on the cusp. There there are systems like uh, Geisinger, Kaiser Permanente, and uh, the VA where I talked about that are systems of healthcare delivery. And those systems have really moved a long ways to adapting to many of these things that we've talked about today because it saves them money and it's quality care and the devices have dropped in price and so they they sort of are the models of the future mm-hmm. in, a, in a big way of where this is going the, the other thing that is sort of interesting is that as a result of technology we're collecting large amounts of data huge amounts of data we're now getting to the point of where we can do something with that data Th- through new kinds of systems that use machine, it was called machine learning, other people might say artificial intelligence. These systems can look at this data and then do predictive modeling on things. So like, for instance, crime data has been used to to tell policemen where they need to patrol at a certain time of day where crime is likely to happen. And we're beginning to do that in healthcare in a big way. And I think as we begin to do that, the care is going to rapidly improve in the next, you know, it's starting now and I think over the next, well, till the end of time probably, but in the next 10 years you're going to see dramatic improvements in care delivery and treatment of things just because, we're now being able to look at this information and make decisions in a more meaningful way. And physicians are going to be a, a vital part of that, but these systems are going to aid doctors and nurses and all kinds of health providers in really having more informed decision and, and tre- treatment of patients. So I think that's going to be the next big thing that we're seeing. It's already happening in a big way with you know, like analysis of DNA and things like that. But people are going to start seeing the impact of this stuff. Um, We've seen it now, but certainly three to five years in a big, big way. So that's very exciting to all of us as well. If I'm a young person and I see that I want to be a doctor or nurse, is it going to be a viable career move financially for me? Or am I going to take a big hit in this future you're talking about and not be able to pay my educational fees because I'm not going to make as much as I would have 10 years ago. How's it going to Well, let me answer that since I got two kids in medical school right now. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's real expensive, and college is expensive. And in residency, they make money but not very much money. It's more – I mean, they they can live, you know, reasonably well. At least that's a lot better than it used to be in the olden days. But I think society's going to have to address this because it, it is a really big issue. It's a big issue in non-medicine, but medicine is a particularly difficult area to train people. And the state has supported a lot 
all states, not just this state, have supported. And with all the issues in society right now, a lot of that funding has been pulled out of the support for these medical schools, which means we've shifted more and more of that money on the student to pay more of their training. That's just, I mean, there's no way to to deal with it. But I think we're going to have to decide as a society what we're going to do about this Mm -hmm. because I think we are in the next not-too-distant future going to see people who would have gone into medicine start thinking about do they really want to do it or not? Do they really want to carry this debt long-term for the rest mm-hmm. of their life. And I think a lot of people are going to not go into the field because that as this progresses. So I think that is a really insightful question, and I think we really need to be as a society thinking about what we're going to do about it. So I think from the nursing perspective, you're, you know, you're always going to ha- still have to have the hands-on. We can't, we're not going to be able to do everything by technology. And from the nursing perspective, I think this really changes if the utilization of how nurses work in their practice. So as Dr. Lowry mentioned earlier, they're going to have to adapt and practice at their highest level with that. So we're still going to need nurses in the hospital to take care of these patients. We're still going to need nurses in clinic office to take care of these patients. We're going to be a new conduit utilizing the technology to these physicians in that. But from a nursing perspective, I, I think it just adds even more. Um, I mean, Tina can expand on it, too. I, I think it just adds more excitement to what they're doing because we're we are built to take care of the patient and their family. I mean, you know, we're patient advocates, and it's not just about, you know, taking temperatures and blood pressures and things like that. There's a lot that goes on with that. So I think this is just going to add an even uh, different element of how we'll practice in the future. And the multidisciplinary care stuff yes. is a big part of what Michael just said, right? Because if if you don't have enough doctors, then, then you yes. use yeah. other groups like that to take a bigger role in – and I say t- it's a team health, it's a healthcare mm-hmm, team mm-hmm. providing the care who are equal members to one another in the treatment of the patient. And we have to do a lot more of that down the road. But I, I just still want to say that it's important that we don't forget about the reality of, of these issues with just the training of not, not only with doctors, but, you know, PAs and other things, you know, because, you know, the institutions are expected to take a lot of this on at the same time revenue from patients are going down NIH funding is going down so it's the perfect storm of really affecting the the ability of medical schools in America to train people adequately wow Tina let me give you the last word I, I think it's an exciting time too I think the evolution of mid-level providers is going to be utilitarian in Arkansas and probably all the way across the country. In Arkansas, almost every county is medically underserved. And so how to use those physicians that we do have in Arkansas in a much more efficient manner and use our mid-level providers, physicians assistants, advanced practice nurses, and other entities to do that big middle care and expedite up to the physician at that level that needs to happen. And so, and, and, and I even want to say, you know, you're going to need community health workers too. You're going to need lay persons that are going to be involved in this team approach. So it's going to be across a huge interface from a, a lay person to the highest level, which is a physician. We've been talking about doctor visits today, and we've gone all the way from the doctor coming into your house to 
maybe a few years from now where it's uh, mostly done by the Internet, I suppose. We've had a really great discussion on this topic, and if you're listening to the half-hour program, I urge you, if you're at all interested in it, to go to our podcast version. That's You'll find the longer version there of everything that we talked about, and that's at KUAR.org or YTTshow.org. I want to thank my guests for being with me here today. Dr. Curtis Lowry is uh, speaking from that older perspective, and he's the professor and chairman Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the College of Medicine. Dr. Lowry, thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having us. And then also, uh, I have two registered nurses with me, uh, Michael Manley. He's the Outreach Director of the UMS Center of Distance Health Director of Outreach. Michael, thanks for being here. You're more than welcome. And then also Tina Benton. Uh, She's the Executive Director of Development and Oversight Director of the UAMS Center for Distance Health and ANGELS Program. Uh, Tina, thanks also for being here. Is there a place that somebody can go on the web to get any information, any address at all for this? You can Google UAMS Center for Distance Health, and you can get all the information about what's going on telehealth here in the state of Arkansas that you would ever want. Give me that address again. UAMS Center for Distance Health. And we also have another website. It's called learntelehealth.org. Yes, and it has all basic information about telemedicine and how to access. Okay. Well, thanks, uh, guys, for being here. Uh, Again, folks, uh, pick up our podcast if you can. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is a production of KUAR Public Radio, Little Rock.